Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. I'm at Maddox Gallery Westbourne Grove with Will Marta, who's a London-based British artist whose commanding line, shape, and bold use of color takes you on a journey through idealized moments in time. Uh, once you see one, you'll never forget them. They're so strong and striking. Hello, Will. Hi. So this show, A World Elsewhere, uh, follows a kind of feminine motif through idealized moments. Is it a romantic meditation on this woman or...? I mean, they, they are based in reminiscence of my own personal memories. Um, uh, times I've spent with uh, my partner, Suzanne, and uh, I think that these experiences that are depicted are kind of universal. We've all sat by a pool or in a pool or been with someone in these kind of environments where there's a sense of uh, profoundness as to where you are, whether it be the beauty of the location or the person that you're with. Yeah, there's a sense that you're trying to freeze time, time that sort of meant important or represented important feelings in relationships. Absolutely. Not only um, important times, but the way in which they're framed as well. The compositions are completely perfect. So everything is ramped up. So the romanticism is ramped up. The idealized locations are ramped up. And everything goes into creating a perfect composition that represents one of those particular moments. Actually, while you're on that subject, I wanted to ask you about the techniques behind your painting. They seem meticulously planned. There's, there's things that I don't even know how to describe. It's an incredibly dexterous process. Once I've uh, decided what the uh, composition will be, whether it's the mixing and merging of, uh, of photos that I've taken myself or imagined places, that will be then drawn onto the canvas uh, with pencil. I then pre-mix every single color that will go into the painting and then individual spaces and contours within the painting uh, surface are masked off, whether with straight line masking or with Swan Morton scalpel blades cut onto the surface to create those forms of water rippling or the, with the curve of a shoulder. And then using foam brushes, those uh, elements are then painted in to create a completely flawless surface. And the only gesture you really see are the ridges that are between each individual color, so it raises up, so it looks almost like uh, marquetry. It's interesting, we were talking before, and I know you started as an abstract painter and introduced the figure. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I uh, as a 15-year-old, I was interested in color field painting, so looking at Albers and Mondrian and understanding the kind of mechanics of color, why certain colors work next to each other. Um, there was a show on at the Tate, I think 1998 of Ellsworth Kelly, which just blew my mind. And then from there, obviously you go on a journey as to which other artists use color in that way. So yes, the early paintings were very abstract in that nature, because I was just discovering how color works. And you can see how it's led into a progression into one at first architectural paintings, then into in the last two or three years, putting figures within the work. The other thing is your color palette. It's strong, bright, amped up, as you said. Yeah. Can you? Yeah, I, I suppose it's, uh, they're actually acrylics, but the acrylics I use have a huge, have incredibly high pigmentation. So you get these incredibly luscious colors that have that almost resonance of oils. Acrylics generally have a bad reputation of being very dull, but these just really are electric next to each other. Electric is the right word, yeah, definitely. I think but many people don't like to show next to me in group exhibitions <laughs> because the paintings are so powerful that if something's next to it, it kind of disappears. And so that has been a problem in the past. The other thing I want to go over is the figure. 
and the mystery of the figure and whether she's a motif or a person that you know or all of those things. Well, originally it was uh, my partner Suzanne. Over 20 years worth of vacations, collecting of photos, mixing and merging them to create her as the motif. So they're a huge personal significance to me. But moving forward, uh, I then uh, found models. But I wanted the models to represent every woman, not a, you know, a completely idealized version of you know, the heroine chic of 90s models. I wanted it to be uh, accessible so people can believe either it is them or it is their partner. So having them facing away in very kind of familiar locations, I think it enables the viewer to put themselves within those environments. So that ambiguity allows the viewer to enter into the picture plane. I was always worried about having figures before I started making these paintings because I thought it, it, cu it cut down the narrative. It didn't allow you into the picture plane. Having someone else there was a barrier. But by placing the figures facing away or their head or their faces obscured and having them front and center, right up in the, in the, in the foreground of the painting, they're so close, uncomfortably close, that they are seen as your companion and, and it's a permitted uh, gaze. When people look at your work, they talk about David Hockney or Alex Katz. Who are you influenced by? Well, it's a myriad, of course, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, with uh, Ellsworth Kelly and Al Held formatively. But certainly, uh, there are many, many comparisons to Alex Katz and David Hockney. And it's certainly not a bad stick to be beaten with because they are fantastic. Their, their mastery of color is just incredible Couldn't and composition. I've also, I, I was also very into kind of experiential artworks, so works that really involve you in the surface, which is why we moved, I moved into making certain Tondo uh, paintings. They're kind of love lockets that you're drawn into the compositions. Also sculptures uh, such as uh, James Turrell or Dan Graham or Jan Debitz, uh, those kind of works that you walk in and around, those are huge favorites of mine as well. Oh, I could see the light source of a James Turrell affecting you. you were, you were canvases give off that kind of electricity. Absolutely. In fact, a collector of mine um, in northern Italy, uh, he has one of my paintings in his bedroom and he uh, woke me up at half past four in the morning in Italy to come into his bedroom and sit on the end of his bed with his wife to see the sun go across the front of the painting. It's just magical. And he, he said, look, this is what I wake up to every morning. And, you know, the intensity of these colours and he just said it every morning, it, gives, it just brings him incredible joy, which was amazing. To, to experience that with them was wonderful. So you have a close relationship with your collectors. That's very interesting. Absolutely. Well, certainly the one that I, I just described. In that, um, when I graduated from the Slade School of Fine Art in 2002, we were having dinner with a number of the, my, my uh, contemporaries. And um, at a table opposite, there was a, a collector, who at the time I didn't know as a collector, who overheard our conversation and wanted to be involved with these young graduates. And he obviously saw something in me and my work. He wanted me to continue to paint rather than going getting a, a job to be able to survive, to be able to paint as all artists do at that formative stage. And he gave me 500 euros a month to stop me from having to work. And uh, he actually lives in Northern Italy, obviously, and he, he would come in five or six times a year and come to my studio and we'd talk about art and music and theatre. And uh, at the end of the year, he would say which particular artwork he liked and he would then take that back to Italy. He's, to this day, is one of my closest friends. He's actually the godfather to my son, my eldest child. So it's those kind of relationships, it's meeting people like that, that have enabled me to be standing here today. I've had a couple of other collectors that have, who have made those 
monthly payments to enable me to continue to paint unhindered, which is an incredibly, uh, you know, I feel very blessed to be able to, to have done that. Also fulfilling the purpose of an artist, which is to draw other people into the conversation and to strengthen empathy and how we connect to each other. And Absolutely. I mean, I've always enjoyed those conversations with, uh, with collectors. It's uh, to see where the work ultimately ends up is such a joy. To see them within domestic environments uh, is, is fantastic. So I, I try and engender as many uh, relationships with collectors as I possibly can. Let's go back to the beginning and, and if you were to describe who you are and, and what you do and how it all started, this artistic life. Well, uh, I was born in uh, Eastbourne and East Sussex. Um, my father was an architect. And as, as, we were, as I was growing up, uh, there were architectural journals always all over, the, uh, all over the house. And holidays weren't to Tenerife or anything like that. that we, we would go and look uh, in Sardinia for trulies or particular pieces of, uh, of, kind of architecture. We'd visit particular buildings. Um, so it was always part of my vocabulary. So um, he really wanted to be an artist. So when I showed an aptitude for painting and drawing, it was wonderfully pushed by him, which is a rare thing to, to find. I got a, a scholarship to school and then straight from school, I did my A-level art a year early and got straight into the Slade from school rather than doing a foundation. So four years at the Slade and then I moved to New York for two years and then came back to London to do my masters at the Royal College of Art. And then with the help of the collectors, I was able to go full steam ahead with my own practice from there on. I've, I've never had a proper job, basically. I was going to ask you what influences culturally and artistically shaped you, but I'm thinking that's part of your whole life story, is forging these relationships with people who believe in you. Of course, and I think that you know, you're always, as, a, as, a, as an artist, you're always drawing on absolutely everything that you possibly can, whether it be theatre or music, or uh, just meeting people with books that you read. You're always drawing on from all of those different experiences and they, they run into your work. Actually, you told me a really interesting story the other day about Philip Glass, and then I started to see the rhythm and the music in your paintings. Can you repeat some of that? Yeah, I, the, my process is very, uh, the, the kind of the initial process of masking is an incredibly repetitive process. I mean, I could spend two days of masking uh, and cutting before I even get to do painting. So you're in this kind of meditative state whilst making the work. It's very kind of robotic, moving backwards and forwards to the canvas. So listening to something like Philip Glass, uh, rather than increasing the insanity of the process, it enabled me to continue to, to make the work. Uh, and within the work, there are rhythms within colour as well and rhythms within motifs. So in some of the paintings uh, where the figure is dancing through the scene, you see uh, lines of perspective changing as she, as she dances through the scene. So, yeah. Shall we go see her? Yeah. So the, the rhythm within the paintings, I mean, a lot of these paintings have very strong single point perspective. And I'm drawing on you know, 14th century uh, religious iconographic painting where you have this incredibly thing that draws you through the painting. And then front and center, the figures uh, create movement or a directional line. Like um, the Piero della Francesca's painting of John the Baptist, you have a dove above the head of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Uh, and you have these incredibly strong um, horizontals and verticals. And that kind of construction is in every single one of the paintings that are in the exhibition uh, uh, here. 
It just means that it shoots your eye up and through the painting. They're incredibly tight and satisfying to look at because of that construction. Well, because I mean, if they make people believe in God, if that's the composition that makes people believe in God, you clearly want that to make people believe in love and the poetry of a romance. But this is, I think, we, we also discussed, um, there's something quite hypnotic about uh, really strong direction or single point perspective. You know, I, I, we do search these things, uh, search these, uh, well, I search these moments uh, out for myself, not only with uh, the depictions of uh, kind of utopian landscapes with a figure within, but those elements when single point perspective in our life it just overtakes our brain. So driving through a, a mountain tunnel with the lights flashing past or over the Golden Gate Bridge, this kind of rhythm of the, of the wires uh, kind of beating along as you drive through them. Uh, a, a line of cypress trees in, in, in Tuscan hills or I search for those moments. As a metaphor for process? Just as, as a satisfying composition. It's, uh, those are the things that, are, that create really consolidated images. So you can play around, once you have that incredible framework, you can then play around very, uh, very well with various other uh, color and texture to, uh, uh, to kind of affirm that single point perspective. But it's the same as um, the paintings downstairs as well with the, the tennis figures. There is that dance in front, and then the incredible single point perspective that drives you through the, through the paintings. We're in the lower level of Maddox Gallery and there's two walls of tondos. Tondos are round paintings. I think Will described them as love lockets. And it's a, a woman with a tennis racket. There's just incredible rich planes of color and kind of a, an emotional detachment that reminds me a bit of Edward Hopper that kind of melancholy. Is there anything in that? I think, um, again, similarly to upstairs, obviously it's a, it's a lone female figure, but um, when making these paintings, I wanted to depict women uh, with poise and strength in uh, showing vitality. Um, and then once I had that in my head, it was like, what game fulfills uh, other elements of my practice? So thinking about the, con the confines of perspective space, um, it had to be a court, um, so then it was right, okay, there's also a chain link which I can indulge in as a painter of, of my particular type of work, so it, the two married very, very well. And obviously with all of these paintings, they are all depictions of women and water again, so the sea. Um, for me, this is, these are taken from uh, photographs I took at, at Laguna Beach three or four years ago. So there's this marrying of uh, the figure of uh, who is not only seductive, but is uh, showing athleticism and poise and strength within the confines of these environments, within the love lockets again. So it's, it's ramping up every element of what we discussed upstairs in that you've got perspective, you've got chain link, you've got the figure, you've got the water, you've got the tondo. It all comprises into creating that super tight uh, composition again. Uh, ushered in with this smooth aesthetic of advertising or film. Absolutely. No, I, to I totally agree. And, and again, the figures are huge in the frame. They're front and centre. They're straight down the middle of the canvas as well. And you have these incredible strong verticals and horizontals again. So you, you're mimicking those, uh, the, like the almost religious iconography as well. So it's ramping up the, the romanticism, yet there is this kind of quasi-ecclesiastical nature to the, uh, to the compositions. Let's go to the one with the towel over her face. 
Yeah. So actually, this was the, the kind of the kernel of, of all of the ideas um, for these tennis paintings. There's a painting by Wayne Tebow called Toweling Off, uh, which I absolutely love. It recently sold, uh, I think just, I think it was just after his death uh, at Sotheby's in New York for some astronomical uh, price. It's a tiny painting, maybe only two foot by one foot, but uh, it, it depicts a woman um, wearing a pinafore dress uh, using it to, to, to mop her, her face. And I, I realized that this was a tool I could use to, to not show faces. So I could have directly facing forward figures and obscure elements of their, their features by using the same kind of, uh, same kind of uh, motif as Wayne Tebow. And an homage to the master that he was. Absolutely, and also the colors as well. I mean, if you're familiar with his work, you, everyone knows the cakes. And uh, these compositions have these incredible pinks and mints and blues uh, that are like sweets. They're jewel-like, these paintings. Obviously, they're much smaller than the paintings upstairs, but there's this kind of luxurious, sweet-like quality. They're like macaroons, the, the colors that are in here. I love macaroons. Let's go look at your drawings. I see the show in three parts. There's the canvases on the main floor, there's the tondos on the lower level, and then in the in-between level, there's these incredible drawings. Can you talk about the drawings? And are they the sort of thought process for the canvases? Do you, is this how you work into the canvases? Not really. These are very rare for me to make paintings of this kind. I call them high-spec drawings. In the early stages of all compositions, I make many, many drawings, but they're very, very rough. And then a lot of the work is then done digitally. So you're cutting out elements from here and you're bringing them in here, moving that beach ball further away from the head, and moving the hat further down on her head. So uh, these drawings were, uh, these, it's not that they didn't make it into paintings, but they were so, I take uh, thousands of hours of film um, with the model. Uh, and I pick very, very specific elements that go into the paintings. So these are, these are paintings that could be made, but I, I felt as if they deserved more than just a, a throwaway sketch. Um, and I made them all very uh, quickly together over a week, these six drawings. So they have a real cohesion to the body of, of, of these six drawings together. And they're just um, pencil on cartridge paper. I get the sense of nostalgia when I look at your work. Like I want to look through my memory bank to find moments. Can you talk about that? I think that uh, these are, these are um, memories that I've had um, or, wish to, or wish to create for myself. Um, I think the difficulty is that they are impossibly perfect. I spend hundreds and hundreds of hours kind of collating images of pools and vistas I take thousands of photographs to create those absolutely perfect, tight compositions. So ultimately, we're doomed to failure because we can't reach that zenith of, of the composition. But, you know, it's like perfection. I mean, you're always striving to, to find that perfect moment. And I think it, each and every one of us from looking at these paintings will search out those moments. That's what we haven't talked about, the psychological component in your work. There is something about mortality that you're also trying to fight. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the, there's all... The psychological thing is trying I, to hold I, on to life. It's always been... I have a few collectors of, uh, who have spoken to me about, OK, there is kind of unbridled joy 
and a utopian feel to the word, but there is a sadness to it as well. There's, you know, it's a lone figure. You could read them in so many different ways, but because they're so perfectly executed, because the environments are so perfect and the compositions are so tight, there is something sinister almost. Uh, That's where I thought the whodunit from. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, not, it's wonderful to be read on so many different levels. Um, but no, I, I certainly, you know, love, love found and lost or uh, you know, a memory of a loved one who is no longer with us. Or youth and aging. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Very Summer true. and winter. Absolutely. And like a, a photo, you're able to revisit that and uh, imagine it's now. A World Elsewhere is on at Maddox Gallery until June the 11th. I urge you to come and see the show. And if you want to follow Will Marta on Instagram, he's at at W Marta, M-A-R-T-Y-R. Also fun. Thank you, Will. This has been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>